The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Christ can die but once. As we have seen in our last study, this fact teaches us that there can never be another outbreak of sin throughout all eternity and in all of God's creation. This truth is very important since it shows us that the death of Christ was quite complete and that nothing can be added to it for the salvation and welfare of the sinner, and that any attempt to add anything to the death of Christ is a terrible thing, since it minimizes the value and glory of that death for us. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Present Victory. The team that wins the Super Bowl is the champion of professional football. This championship is not permanent, and so they have to try and win the Super Bowl again the next year. But Jesus won a permanent, eternal victory over sin, death, and the powers of evil by His crucifixion, death, and resurrection. The glorious triumph of His work of salvation which He accomplished many centuries ago ensures present victory for every believer today. The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Present Victory. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto Thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. There is none like unto thee, faithful unto a thousand generations, to them that love thee and follow thee. Thou art slow to anger and of great compassion. New every morning thy mercies. Great is thy faithfulness. Wilt thou, we beseech thee, take thy word in this hour and send it forth in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. Use it to quicken those who are dead in trespasses and sins and to bring to full triumph of Christian life those who know thee in salvation. We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our study goes on to the text in Romans 6, verses 9 and 10. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died to sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. It is indeed one of the most important truths of the word of God that the Lord Jesus Christ can die but once. Now the one death that Jesus Christ passed through is a historical event. 
which took place in time more than 19 centuries ago. It was located in space on the hill of Calvary outside of Jerusalem. It lasted for six hours, three hours of daylight and three hours of supernatural darkness, accompanied by a great earthquake and other supernatural manifestations. One of the principal things that happened was the tearing of the great veil that hung in the temple and which protected the Holy of Holies from the gaze of the people. This was the divine object lesson given to all men, that the approach to God was now no longer through the devious ways of form and priestcraft, but that men should come boldly to the throne of a new and living way into the holiest of all. The early church held the pure and perfect doctrine of the finality of Christ's death and the certainty that he, as our text says, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. They knew that he had truly suffered, was crucified, dead and buried, in order to reconcile his father to us and to be a sacrifice, not only for original guilt, but also for all actual sins of men. They knew that he came to be the lamb without spot, who, by sacrifice of himself once made, should take away the sins of the world. They knew that the offering of Christ once made is that perfect redemption, propitiation, and satisfaction for all the sins of the whole world, both original and actual. And there is none other satisfaction for sin but that alone. Though these phrases are taken from a creed of the 16th century, the 39 Articles of the Church of England, they are an accurate statement of the beliefs of the early Christian church because they are an accurate mirror of the teaching of the divinely given revelation in the Word of God. The natural heart of man hates the doctrine of salvation by the grace of God. He wants to be independent of God. And while the natural man wants to be in heaven, he desires to be there sitting on the throne without God bothering him. Now, fundamentally, that is the heart of the situation. And that attitude is responsible for all of the false doctrines that have ever been invented by the combination of the ingenuity of Satan and that of fallen man. Throughout the centuries, therefore, the doctrines of human participation in salvation grew in the measure that men departed from the finality of the revelation of God in his word. As the centuries passed and the dark angels came on, the doctrines which the Bible calls doctrines of demons came more and more to the forefront. Satan's great enmity is the cross of Jesus Christ, for it was there that the Lord spoiled principalities and powers, made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, as we read in Colossians 2.15. At the end of the Dark Ages, the following doctrine had become accepted by many, and it persists even today. I will read it as it was presented four centuries ago. We find in the second chapter of the 22nd session of a council that met in the 16th century the following, quote, And since in this divine sacrifice which is performed in the communion the same Christ is contained and is bloodlessly immolated who once offered himself bloodily on the cross, 
and the Holy Council teaches that this sacrifice is propitiatory, that is to say that it takes away sins, and that by its means, if we approach God contrite and penitent, with a true heart and a right faith, and with fear and reverence, we may obtain mercy and grow in seasonable succor. For the Lord, and I'm still reading the creed of the 16th century, for the Lord, appeased by the oblation of this sacrifice, that is to say, God is appeased by the offering of a bloodless sacrifice, in spite of the fact that he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And the creed goes on, quote, for the Lord, appeased by the oblation of this sacrifice, granting grace and the gift of repentance, remits even great crimes and sins. There is one and the same victim and the same person, the creed states, who now offers by the ministry of men who then offered himself upon the cross, the mode of offering only being different. And the fruits of that bloody offering are truly most abundantly received through this offering, so far it is from derogating in any way from the former. Wherefore, and this is the concluding phrase of the quotation, it is properly offered according to the tradition of the apostles, not only for the sins, punishments, satisfactions, and other wants of the living, but also for the dead in Christ who are not yet fully purged, unquote. Now let us understand fully the meaning of that paragraph. What it teaches beyond any question is that the sins of men are removed not by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary in the historical act where he shed his blood some 1900 years ago, but they say that the sins of men were removed in the 16th century by the ministry of a man who took a piece of bread and recited certain formulas over it, changing it, according to this teaching, into the true body of Christ, which was then killed over again in the 16th century in a hundred thousand different places. And from the canons of that 16th century council, other phrases go beyond any question that there are those who believe that the historical death of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary was not sufficient to accomplish what our text says that it did. And it's interesting to note that the Latin version of their pronouncement against such false doctrines called them blasphemous figments and pernicious impostures, unquote. The truth about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is no fable, no deceit, no figment, no imposture. When he died on the cross, he died once and for all and forever. Nothing can be added to it, and it can in no wise be diminished. Now that we've established the facts, let us see the application to our own Christian living. For we must not forget that the doctrine which is set forth in these chapters is incidental to the main theme, namely, that the Lord is teaching us that it is possible for us to live as those who are alive from the dead. A life of triumph over sin is the present permanent right of the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If there is any believer who does not have it, it is because he is not availing himself of the power that Christ established in his death. If you say that you believe in Christ as your Savior, but if you have made some secret compact with sin within your soul so that you do not live in the victory of Christ, you should come back to these truths and find your full emancipation from the empire of sin. Our present text 
follows the preceding one. That's not a trite statement, but a profound one. The eighth verse reads, But if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. The tense is in Greek a continuing one, and might be translated, If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall keep on living with him. Now it's following this that our text adds, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. The argument is the following. When Christ died, God counted him as dying for us and in our stead. God also saw us as being in Christ, absolutely identified with him as our federal head. Then the Lord Jesus Christ arose from the dead. When he arose, we were counted as being raised with him. And since he can never die again, it follows most logically that the victory which he obtained for us is ours as long as he liveth, and therefore there need be no lapses in our triumph. There is no flaw in his resurrection, therefore there need be no flaw in our victory. Never was the Lord Jesus Christ under the dominion of sin, but he did come under the dominion of death. For a brief few hours that were as an eternity, he became sin, and as a result of that fact, was brought under the dominion of death. But he became sin, we read, because of us, or on our behalf, in our place. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made Christ to be sin for us. The dominion of death could not last for him, however, because he was in himself the sinless one. And the Father loved him well and rejoiced in what the Son was doing. All was according to the plan of the Father. The son had eternally agreed and had submitted himself to the plan. It was for this reason that he laid down his life. But it was not possible for him to be holden of death. He had prayed that this cup might pass from him, and pass from him it did. The angels came and ministered to him before he died. And he knew that though the father would forsake him, he would not have to drink the cup of eternal death. Therefore his heart did rejoice, and his flesh did rest in hope. As he knew, as we read in the second chapter of Acts, he knew that his soul would not be left in hell, nor that he, the Holy One of God, be permitted to see corruption. The only death that could touch him, Christ, was the death that came because our sins were laid upon him, and he took their guilt in himself. Now he has risen and death has no more dominion over him. And since we are seen by God as being in him, death has no more dominion over us. The fact is a divine one, and therein lies a great certainty for the past, a great certainty for the present, and a great certainty for the future of every believer who has put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Death has no dominion over our Lord, and therefore none over us concerning the past. We were slaves to Queen Death. Death reigned within us. But the death and resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ frees us forever from the thrall of that sovereignty and gives us a calm assurance concerning our emancipation from that slavery. What hope is in this fact? Whoever you may be that hears these words, look up and take courage. Be your past ever so black. Be your ingrained sin ever so deep. The Lord Jesus Christ 
has satisfied every claim of sin and death against you. And death has no more dominion over you because of any past. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red as crimson, they shall be as wool. Death hath no dominion over our Lord, and therefore none over us for the present. Strictly speaking, it is this phase of the truth that is being presented in the context of our present text. The reason for introducing the subject at this point in the argument is to inform the believer that he is united to the risen Christ in such a way that all of the triumphs of that risen life may be counted as his. It is possible for the believer to enter into that victorious resurrection much more completely than even advanced believers imagine. While baby Christians need to learn the possibilities which they do not seem to see, even from afar. One of the reasons why the Lord has to make many believers restless in the early portion of their life is so that they will become dissatisfied, turn to him for the lessons that must be learned in order to bring us to the place of participation in the resurrection life of Christ. It is for this purpose that the great revelation is now made in our text that Christ died unto sin. As many commentators have pointed out, Christ's death unto sin is not to be confused with Christ's death for sin. The death for sin was fully set forth in the third, fourth, and fifth chapters of this epistle to the Romans. Christ's death unto sin refers not to his payment of the debt of our sins, but rather to the positive change of our whole relationship in being taken out of the family of Adam and being placed in the family of God. I have already quoted a passage from Corinthians which needs enlightenment at this point. I shall quote it from the revised version. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Be ye reconciled to God. Him who knew no sin, God made to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now there are two halves to this verse. The first half tells us that Christ was made what we had been. And the last half tells us that the purpose was in order that we might become what he is. The first half of this was prefigured when the serpent had bitten the people in the wilderness. And Moses was told to make a serpent of brass for them to gaze upon. It came to pass that those who looked at the serpent on the pole received life. The reason for this miracle by God was in order to exhibit the principle that is set forth here. The people had been bitten by the serpents. The cure was to gaze upon something made in the likeness of the thing that had bitten them. We have been wounded by sin. Our only cure is to gaze upon Christ lifted up and exhibited to us, made in the likeness of sin's flesh. Thus our guilt was removed, but that was not all. No one example can illustrate all of spiritual truth, and therefore the serpent lifted up can tell us only of the first half of this truth. But the second half is just as true. By the death of Christ, we become present continuing tense. By the death of Christ, we become the righteousness of God in him. It is so important that we understand that God does not change the old Adam nature in the slightest. He puts it to death. 
And the righteousness which we become in the death of Christ is the very divine nature of which we are made partakers, as we read in 2 Peter 1.4. We do not read that if any man be in Christ, he's a changed Adam. But we read if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Thus it is that Christ's death unto sin and our inclusion in that death give us our position in him of being dead unto sin. The details of this we shall see in our next study. But there is the third and final point involved in our text. Death hath no more dominion over the Lord, and therefore none over us for the future. The life which the Lord Jesus Christ lives is the life of God, eternal and perfect in every way. It is in this life that we are united to him. This is why the Lord Jesus Christ was able to say, Verily, verily, I say unto you, If a man keep my word, he shall never see death. How could it be possible for one who had been joined to Christ to see death? How can we be joined to death when we are already joined to the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life? The second death hath been removed forever by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first death, our physical death, is but an open door into glory for the believer. I have a sister who died recently. She put it this way. Death is like stepping out of a dark room into a wide sunlit room where Christ awaits. God has robbed death of its sting. And the very word that is used in the New Testament for the death of a believer likens that death unto a falling asleep. There is no thought, of course, of the sleep of the soul in this. But the body is placed in the dormitory of earth, awaiting the call to rise at the dawn of a new day. Originally, the pagans thought of their graveyards as the dwelling places of departed spirits. But they had no pleasant names for these places. True, the Latins came to a stage in their civilization where they cremated the bodies of their departed loved ones and placed the ashes in urns, set in niches of walls, as these niches looked like dovecotes, they called them columbaria. But it took the force of Christian faith to develop the name cematerion, from which we get our word cemetery. For the cemetery was the dormitory, especially the barracks of the soldiers. At the call of death, the believer fell asleep, as at the sounding of taps. But the angel will blow the trump of the resurrection, even as the sergeant blows reveille. And when that trump shall sound, the dead in Christ shall rise and come forth as soldiers swarm out of the barracks for their morning call. And forever shall we be joined to our glorious captain to appear with him in glory throughout his eternal reign. And our God and Father, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit will take this lesson to many hearts that they indeed may fix their life and hope on the fact that thy word states that Jesus Christ died once for all, then how can there be anything for us to do in it? How can we add to it? How can we be blessed by any addition? But keep us, Lord, in the uniqueness of thy word and draw us on to thyself, knowing thee better and loving thee more. And unto thee be all glory and grace, both now till the Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. Thank you.
we are united with the one who declared, I am the resurrection and the life. Death, sin, and Satan no longer hold us in their power. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, Present Victory. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Present Victory, or simply request message number R6-26. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, All Things Work Together. Romans 8.28 declares, We know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, even to them who are called according to His purposes. Yet many times we may feel that nothing good could ever come out of our problems and circumstances. This free booklet shows how this precious and powerful promise applies to any situation you may be facing and can fill you with hope and encouragement when you need it the most. Ask for your free copy of All Things Work Together when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.